I actually figured out the transition last time I came up during the wrong song. So my name's Steve. Uh, if you are new here, I am not normally the guy that speaks here. Uh, I'm actually on the pastoral staff with Cornerstone Church, working towards planting a church in Marshalltown, where my M-Town people at. Brought a little cheering section. It's the only way I get love. It's great. Um, anyways, so yeah, my name's Steve. Uh, I'm going to be working with this awesome group of people to plant a church in Marshalltown, uh, fall of 2020. And we are super excited about that. We have kind of a kinship with uh, you here at Stonebridge, not just because of my relationship with Matt and being here in the past, but also as far as the, the Salt Network goes, um, this is the most similar church to what is going to be, what we're going to feel like in Marshalltown. So we just have a great love for you guys here and uh, appreciate watching how you guys have loved your city and trying to emulate things like that too. So um, I wanted to start with kind of sharing a, a little bit of an embarrassing story for myself. Um, I don't really embarrass easily. Uh, so there's a lot of stories that like I could share that I should have been embarrassed, but I was kind of like, nah, well, oh well. So I had to like go back deep to like a time long ago when I used to get embarrassed so when I was in college, uh, I was at University of Iowa in Iowa City, and I remember I was in between like that class period time. And so you, it's just mass chaos of people walking all over the place, like just people letting out of classes, people going into classes. So I'm walking in between the business building and this Van Allen Hall that's down the road, and I'm walking with a few people that are like in that one class and then the next class with me. So we're walking down the road. We're starting to walk up these steps into the building. And I'm mid-sentence when all of a sudden a moth flies into my mouth. Not a good feeling. It's like still fluttering in there. And I'm trying to like get this thing out. So I make mid-sentence and all of a sudden I'm like... <laughs> just making a total fool of myself trying to get this moth out of my mouth because I don't like that. And so finally, I succeed in spitting this moth out, and I look up, and there's about 150 to 200 people just staring at me, wondering, what is wrong with this guy? And so I'm just, like, trying to, like, feign my attempt at trying to, like, ah, moth, mouth, ah, trying to, like, walk through what just happened there, but just feeling, like, totally embarrassed. I finally, like, I'm just going to class, and just, like, kind of, like, walk off. Luckily, one of the other people that was with me was like, hey, I saw the moth, too. So I was like, great, I'm not crazy. There's moth and mouths do not go together. So I had this just like this super awkward, weird experience of being embarrassed. And some people would even call that feeling humiliation. So if I asked you to think of a time when you felt embarrassed and humiliated, you could probably come to one. And if I asked you to like share that story, your face would probably turn red immediately and be like, I don't want to talk about that. So we all have these stories, we all have these times where we can really feel like we've been embarrassed or like life, like, man, that did not go the way I wanted it to. But I want to I talk about this idea of embarrassment. I want to talk about humiliation. So a lot of times in our culture, we call those things synonyms, like they, they mean the same thing. But from the biblical sense, as we're beginning to talk about this idea of humiliation, it actually has a very different connotation to it. So from the biblical sense, the other way to use this word of humiliation or to humiliate is to, to bring someone low. So today what we're going to be looking at is as we dive into the book of Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see Christ being humiliated, not embarrassed, but being brought low on this journey of humiliation from heaven to the cross. And it's... It's a story 
that as I've been preparing for this message, as I've been thinking through the, the text of this and the ideas of this, a lot of times when I'm like preparing a message, sometimes I'm like, oh man, I really hope like so-and-so is there because like this is a message they need. Or like you've all had the same thought, like man, like I really wish my, my wife was paying attention right now or my husband was paying attention because this is a message they need. Well, this is one of those messages for me that really I need. I need this reminder. You see, I don't know what your story is like. If you've grown up going to church, if you have like the gold sticker stars for like Sunday school attendance, where you've like mastered that perfect attendance thing, or I don't know what your life has looked like in that sense. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever even walked in here today, and you don't even know that I'm not the normal guy because this is your first time. What, wherever you're at in that, what I, what I want to encourage you today is don't let this gospel message, this story of Jesus and the cross become old to you. See, this, this story is something that's at the base and the foundation of everything having to do with Christianity. And so as we jump into this, as we begin to, to think about this, I want to kind of anchor back in something that Matt said last week. If you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you, go back and listen to that message because it was awesome. So last week, the text that Matt was preaching kind of like ties into what we're preaching this week. So starting in verse 5 in Philippians chapter 2, it starts that, Have this mind among yourselves. But if you weren't here last week, if you haven't read that, you don't have no idea what this mind is supposed to be. So if you jump back with me to verse 3 for a second, it says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says, have this mind, this mind of humility among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, Paul doesn't give instructions that are like, you already know them. Like nowhere in the Bible does it says, now remember, go therefore and ye breathe. It comes naturally. So when there's an instruction to do something, it's usually because it doesn't come naturally to us. It's those things that like, we're not used to doing. And so this idea, this call that Paul is asking us to live a life of humility, asking others to think more highly of ourselves, doesn't come naturally. And so you might be thinking, that is humanly impossible to do that. And you're probably right. Now, if you're married in the room, think of like the first like two or three years of your marriage. Did it come naturally to think of somebody else better than yourself? Or if you have kids, you can see in your kids that they don't think of anybody but themselves. Our natural wiring, our natural inclination is to want to be the center of attention, is to want to have everything focused on us. But yet Paul is saying, put others first. And the example that he gives us, that he walks through, is Jesus. Now, before we continue on in this, I want to kind of give you a quick preface. There's going to be some interweaving stories that we're looking through today. So we're going to be bouncing a little bit between Genesis and Isaiah and Philippians and spending time looking at the, this broader idea of Scripture and the storyline of God, of what he's doing. And so in Genesis 1 through 3, we get introduced to this need for a Redeemer. We get introduced to the idea of this, the fallen humanity and the need that the relationship is broken, that we need something to bring us back together. 
Then at Isaiah 40 through 55, you get these amazing pictures of this, this servant, this promised one that is to come, that is to serve the needs of humanity. Then in Philippians 2, you see the triumph of the Redeemer. Not a portrait of a thing to come, but the triumph of the one that had been promised. So read with me if you still have your Bibles open to Philippians 2. I want to read verses 6 through 8. Starting back at the end of verse 5. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a lot of ideas that are packed into this, a lot of thoughts that are packed into this. And I just want to Go verse by verse and kind of thought by thought as we begin to I, I really understand what is it that Jesus did for us. And so the beginning part of this, we see Jesus in heaven. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus starts in heaven. He is part of the triune God. He is God. But yet... He did not count that equality as something to be grasped. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, if we jump back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what you see in there is that mankind, Adam and Eve, are made to be image bearers of God. They are made in the image of God, and then they are put in this perfect place where they have full communion with God. They get to spend time with him, but they're tempted with the one thing that they don't have. The serpent comes along and he begins to tempt them saying, hey, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you can become like God. And they're thinking that's the one thing we don't have. We don't have the ability to be like God, and that's attractive to us. We want to do that. So what do they do? They reach out their hand and they grasp the ability to be like God, even though that is not for them to have. So see this contrast. Adam and Eve in the garden grasp what should not be theirs, which is a quality like God. And Jesus, who is God, has equality with God, doesn't grasp what is rightfully his, but therefore willingly lets it go for a purpose. So where Adam failed, and reached out for that which was not his to grasp, Jesus succeeded by willingly giving up that which was his to hold on to. So we see Jesus in heaven, then he leaves heaven, he comes to earth and takes on the likeness of man. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. So there's a lot of debate over what is it that he emptied himself of. I think if we were to spend a lot of time going through that, he, he is fully God. He is fully man. So he didn't give up his divinity. He didn't give up his godness. But I think what he gave up was his glory. 
So he gave up the glory that was his. And you get a little glimpse of that when he's in his earthly ministry. He's at the top of this mountain. Elijah and Moses show up and a couple of his disciples see Jesus in his full glory, shining in radiance. That, I think, is what he gave up. He gave up the glory to be normal people, a normal person. This whole idea of taking the form of a servant comes right out of that Isaiah text that we were talking about. Isaiah 52, 13 even says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And he's just tying this language of all of this interweaving stuff from all throughout Scripture, coming to the head, coming to the point at what Paul is talking about here. It says that he was born in the likeness of man. The psalmist even writes that you have made him a little lower than the angels for a short period of time. Now, walk with me, though, through the the irony of this. Um, Jesus came in the form of man who was made in the form of Jesus. So Jesus leaves his greater glory to become like something made in a less glorious version of himself, to walk in that for a purpose. Now, if we looked more at that Isaiah passage goes on to say that, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So you see, not only does Jesus leave heaven to come to earth to take on the likeness of man, but he is actually beaten so badly that he actually looks less than human. He doesn't even look like a human being anymore because of the physical abuse he went through. I think we have an enemy called the devil. And I think that the devil did that because even that that imperfect image that we are created in as image bearers of God, that Jesus took on, he left his glory, took on the lesser version. Satan said, I have to even take that from him. So he used all of the evil that is in his control in this world to take away even the little glimpse of God's glory that existed in Jesus by looking like being made in the form as an image bearer. This actually answers a question for us sometimes, too, of why does our enemy hate us so much? It's because we are made in the image of God. As image bearers, we walk around as creations of the loving God. And Satan hates that. Anything that he can do to strip away the glory of God, strip away the hope that we have, he will do that because we walk in a fallen and broken place. As Jesus has left heaven, come to earth in the likeness of man, being beaten where he no longer even looks like a man, he ends up on the cross. humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' whole life has been a life of humiliation, a whole life of becoming lower and lower and lower. And at this point, he is, he is lifted up in a way that is actually the most condemned way to die. He is lifted up and brought even lower in the process of that by being having a criminal's death and being cursed by being put on a tree. Now, this idea of death here, though, I think we again have to jump back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to really understand what's going on here. Because when we think of death, a lot of us think, oh, uh, that person stopped breathing, therefore now they're dead. Well, that was a physical death. But there's a, a different kind of death that we get introduced to in Genesis 2 and 3. And if we were to spend some time walking through that, what you're going to begin to see is in that whole process, in what God's doing, he's created this garden. He's put Adam in the garden. He's giving Adam the grand tour. And he says, Adam, all of this is yours. Any of it, you can have it. Now, in the midst of this garden, there's these two trees. The tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. It's the one rule that God gave Adam. He told them that on the very day you eat of that tree, you will die. Death. Stop breathing. Adam has no ability to comprehend this because he has not experienced or seen death yet. Serpent comes along begins to tempt them, saying, oh, surely you're not going to die. Surely you won't stop breathing. It's just a little piece of fruit. And they take a bite, and they don't stop breathing, but there is death, isn't there? The result is not that they stop breathing. The result is that they are separated from God. There's this spiritual death that we are all born into, you see, we are born dead. And then Jesus calls us to life because of what he did. So now in order for him to be able to do that, though, in order for him to be in all forms human, he had to experience what we were born into. He had to experience what we experienced, which is separation from the Father. The gospel writer in Mark recorded that as Jesus on his fateful night was going into the garden to pray, he says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That term, Abba, kind of like Daddy. Jesus is praying, knowing what's going to come. Knowing the physical pain that he's going to go through. Knowing the excruciating pain of the cross. Knowing the physical death that's coming. But that, I don't think, is what he's agonizing over. He knows that on the cross, he will have to be what we are, what we were, which is separated from the Father. The only time 
in all of eternity past and the only time in all of eternity future that Jesus was separated from God is at the cross. Physical death and the physical pain was one thing, but I think that was nothing in comparison to the separation from his father. The question really becomes, why would he do that? Why would he separate himself from himself? See, he became separated so that we wouldn't need to be. Isaiah 53, 6 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, because we strayed, he stayed. He became sin, he became separated. So that he can mend that separation for us. If he didn't do that, we would have no hope. After being taken off of that cross, after enduring the separation from his father, after enduring the physical death that he went through, he was put in the grave in a borrowed tomb. And at this point, the story might look pretty bleak. It might look like there's not a lot of hope. The Savior seems to have lost. The enemy is beginning to rejoice, thinking that they've won. But it's not over, is it? This was a 1940s-style movie. This would be the time where they'd be the interlude, go to the bathroom, grab some more popcorn, or whatever it was they did back then. But instead of doing that, the interlude I want to share is my story. You see, Jesus met me at a low point. He met me in a valley. I grew up going to church. I grew up every week, even on vacations, we would have to like bring our Sunday best clothes to wear, to put on. Like You kids don't even know how bad it was for us. Like dress pants, button-up shirt, a little like clip-on tie. It was terrible. It was awful. But that's what we had to endure. And you kids are lucky. But I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing about the story. I grew up learning about religion. Maybe that was you. Maybe you grew up learning about religion. You see, I didn't grow up learning about the relationship with Jesus. There really was no relationship with Jesus for me. So I go off to University of Iowa, the same place that that moth flew into my mouth, and I did what most people do when they go off to college, especially at University of Iowa, which is get sucked into the downward spiral of junk that happens in Iowa City. And I remember driving home from Christmas break a freshman year with a hangover, feeling like I was at a low. And I remember getting home and there's this bag of letters sitting on my desk. And I thought, oh no. See, the summer before, I'd been on a mission trip where I had been uh, working with middle school kids and I had challenged them 
to write a letter of encouragement to themselves that I was going to send back out after six months. And here I am with a hangover trying to figure out how to encourage these young kids to pursue Jesus. And I realized that I had nothing. I realized that I couldn't tell them these Christianese things that I wanted to tell them because I wasn't living them. And I I could not think of a single Bible verse that had anything to do about encouragement. I had nothing. And I realized for the first time in my life that I had been learning about all of this religion. I had been trying to do these things. I've been trying to earn God's favor and I've been trying to do all this stuff. And that was the first moment in my life that I finally said, just like the song we just sang, I surrender. I gave not just a piece of my life to Jesus, but I said, take the whole thing because I am not doing a good job. And he met me in the valley. I would love to tell you that my entire life since that point has been hunky-dory, awesome. But it's not. My family and I are reading through the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which was written back in the 1600s. And there's all of these, like this, this whole, the storyline of this guy is he's pursuing the celestial city. And after he gets through the gate, you think this is going to be easy now, but you're only like barely into the story. My kids are like, wait, well, shouldn't it, they, it should be shorter than if he's already gotten on the road, right? But along the way, there's pitfalls, there's distractions, and there's valleys of darkness that he has to go through. So Jesus met me in a valley. That's where he pulled me out of that valley, walked with me out of that valley. But, you know, maybe you're here today and you're going through a dark time and you're feeling like, man, I feel like I'm in a valley. Isn't this life, this Christian thing supposed to be all like positive? Jesus is with us and all that kind of stuff. Not always. My family and I right now, we're walking through a valley. There's some past abuse in my wife's life that we've been walking through that's been really difficult to handle, really difficult to walk through. And I'll tell you, there's times in these last two years where we have felt like it is utter darkness with no hope. We've been walking with Jesus for 15 years. And we're in a time where it just feels dark sometimes. Not knowing how long the valley is. Not knowing if we're still going down, if we're starting to go up. Not knowing when it's going to end. But you want to know what gives us hope right now? That Jesus is the Lord of the valley too. That Jesus walked down that road of humiliation. He walked into a darker valley than we will ever experience so that he can come find his travelers in the valley. That he can come meet us in the darkness and say, you can't see, but I can. You don't have any hope, but look to me because I am your hope. That's the trust. That's the truth that we have in Jesus. That he has conquered the valley. So that when we walk through the valley, he is walking through it with us. You see, it is in our weakness that the gospel meets us. It is in the dark times that Jesus becomes our light. Jesus became broken so that he could reach the broken. Now at this point in the story, Jesus has been laid in the grave. And Satan thinks that he has just delivered the knockout punch. He's dethroned the air. And if you're a big boxing fan, you know that they usually start counting from 1 to 10. But all of a sudden the countdown starts the other direction. 10, 
9, 8. Satan begins to wonder what is going on. You're counting the wrong direction. 7, 6, Five. All of a sudden, the, the angels begin to, get, begin to get excited. There's an anticipation building. Four, three, two, one. And the stone rolls away from the grave. And our Savior emerges victoriously, having conquered death. That is where our hope comes from. You see, the other half of this passage. Continue reading with me in verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus' road to the cross was a road of humiliation, but it didn't end there. We have the other side of this, where Jesus comes back to life and he is exalted. Remember that verse I just read from Isaiah 52? It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, here's the interesting thing. The cross, he was lifted up. And what was meant to bring humility, what was meant to tear him down, was actually the means by which he was exalted. Jesus' entire earthly ministry, as he is looking back at the throne in heaven that he knows is rightfully his, that he will rightly sit on again someday, every time he looks at that throne, the cross stands before it. And he knows that the only way to be exalted, the only way to be lifted up to the throne is to have to be lifted up on the cross. And he endured it. And he conquered it and he won. And he has been high and exalted. He has been lifted up. He has been put back on the throne. Verse 10 and 11 says, So that the name, at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has been elevated. It's no longer just the name, but it's actually equated with this Old Testament idea of God being the one, Yahweh. And every person and creature in heaven, on earth, and below earth will confess that he is king with no exception. Some will be doing it out of praise and some, of it will, some will be doing it out of dread of realizing that they did not see it. Now, in this picture of Christ walking through the valley of humiliation and exaltation, we see that his brings him low into the valley and then brings him back up out of the valley. He starts in heaven and he ends in heaven with a journey in between that only he could do. 
Psalm 23 talks about there's this idea of as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for though you are with me. As we walk through the valley, and the valley was not just your pre-Jesus days. The valley's not just back from the beginning, but there are valleys as you walk through life now. And know that Jesus walks through those valleys with you. Back in Isaiah chapter 57, God is speaking through Isaiah and he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, Christ not only dwells in heaven, but also in the valley with those who are broken. He can walk with the oppressed because he himself was oppressed. He can walk with the broken because he himself was crushed and shattered. He can revive the spirit of the lowly because he was brought low. And he himself was brought back to life. You see, he can promise life because he is the great life giver. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, we can trust Jesus because when we are in the depths of despair and loneliness, he has been there before us. When we feel alone, we can know that he was left alone so that he can join us in our loneliness so that we are really never truly alone. And when we are weeping, over a difficult circumstance, we can take comfort in knowing that Christ is weeping with us. The end result of Jesus walking through the journey is that joy, our source of joy, is fulfilled. This whole book of, of Philippians talks about this idea of joy. Again, the definition that we're working with with joy out of the series is delight and satisfaction independent of circumstances. If you were here a few weeks ago and I was here to be able to open up this, this book, we talked about how we, we choose joy today. We choose joy in the valley, not because the valley's fun. We choose joy in the valley because we know that he's already won, that he is on the throne. We look past the valley and know that he is done with this. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're on a mountaintop having a great time or if you are feeling like you're in the midst of a valley. I don't know what your story is. But I want to encourage you that no matter where you are at, no matter who you are, that Jesus is walking this life with you. 
that he has walked through a far darker, more difficult valley than we will ever experience so that we can come to him and ask him, plead with him, walk with me too. And he says, I'm already there. I know the way. Trust me. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you. God, we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. Knowing, Jesus, that it is not the work that we do. That it's not who we are, Lord, but it was you that we can take hope in. It's you that we can take comfort in. God, as we walk through the valleys, will you continually remind us of who you are? Continually remind us that we can trust you because you've been through it. This is not new for you. There's nothing that we come across. There's nothing that we walk through that you don't know and haven't already been there. So God, I pray that you just continually wrap your arms around us as they were outstretched on that cross, Lord, so that you can wrap your arms around us now. God, I'm thankful for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We have the pleasure and the benefit of being able to take communion together today. Communion, if you're not familiar with what this is, is on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a, the Passover meal with his disciples. And in the midst of that meal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke that bread saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And so you're going to go back. There's little cups of broken pieces of bread back there. And there's little cups of juice. And the juice is signifying at the end of the meal how Jesus took the cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. And as he gave these elements to his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we have that benefit today of being able to take communion, remember the sacrifice that he made for us. As we just again, whether it's your first time or it's your hundred and thousandth time coming to the foot of the cross and saying, thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that you did. So logistically, what we'll have you do is go out the back. You'll see the bread. You'll see the juice come back into your seat and you can take it at any point. Go back for it at any point during these last two songs. Thanks. We will continue to worship with us.